Hey ho, tutor-minded people, I'm Gage. I'm Jessica, we're Tutor Time Machine, and this is episode 55 of our podcast. 55, wow. I know, and thank you so much for listening. If this is your first time here, it's best to start at episode one. This is a story project, and it goes in order, and we don't want you to miss any of the twists and turns of our tale. We're so excited to have listeners from all over the world. It's amazing to see where all our listeners come from. And if you're enjoying it, we hope you'll support us by buying some Tutor Time Machine swag. Go to our Tutor Time Machine Facebook page, hit the shop now button and buy, buy, buy. You can get a Do You Tutor t-shirt. They're so cute. Or a Tutor Time Machine logo sweatshirt. And you'll be supporting us at the same time. And we really appreciate it. And actually this episode, it is the first time, sadly, that Jessica and I have not been able to be in the same location to record. And we're doing it over Zoom. (laughs) Yeah. Just to remind you, in our last episode, Constance, made it past the city walls and out of London. So now we're going to see what Blackjack is up to. And after the reading, we'll have some fun discussing the history beyond our tale and making connections between then and now. Read on, Jesse. Chapter 55, On the Gravesend Road, in which Blackjack ridicules love and yet is swayed by it. Spirito del Potente cannot plod as your mount does, Sir Henry Lee crowed, as for the hundredth time his stallion reared on its hind legs and hopped forward. Regard the caparole! Blackjack was impatient. No man added to the hours of tedium with the utter conviction of Sir Henry Lee. It had been a day and a night since they left the court to retrieve the Queen's ladies from their errand of escorting the Princess Cecilia to Dover. Every moment had been filled with Sir Henry wagging his tongue about his poxy horse. Blackjack was glad to fetch the ladies back to Whitehall. Escorting Elizabeth's maids on diplomatic duties was one of the pleasures of being in the Queen's guard. Though he had been surprised when Queen Elizabeth dispatched a delegation to accompany the Swedes. Princess Cecilia was well known to be in disgrace, leaving debts outstanding. But then again, Her Majesty would not so obviously slight a fellow royal. Yet Elizabeth's party could have ridden home on their own. Where were the bandits? He rode along as if in a garden. Could he not have been attacked by robbers on this endless road, promised to be so very dangerous? How dreary. And who gifted you the fine animal, sir? William goaded the old word-spill Lee. Blackjack contemplated murder. William Norris, beloved brother of Blackjack, killed for provoking a boar. The steed was given me by the noble Doge of Venice, said Lee, ever stressing the title. I remember when he was a boy, always with his finger in his nose, said the Marquis of Northampton. I think your young Elan does the same, Blackjack said. My sweetest Elin is a woman in full flower. You wrong her. A sweet-tailed fox, Blackjack baited. Sir, your wit goes far. I will not take your doubt of her. The high colour in the Marquis's face baffled Blackjack. He said, My lord, I know well that our queen is not one to hand favour for nothing. Lady Elin's place was no doubt earned. And indeed, by her abundant charm, Sir John Norris, what do you accuse the lady of? Nothing, interjected William. My brother accuses her of nothing that does not serve our kingdom. You speak rightly, Sir William. 
and which of us would not watch for our queen to keep her safe, or should honour Lady Elin Snakenborg, Ophthalmitis and Aphrodite in one person? The Marquis puffed up. I will drink to her health, said William, and to her eyesight. My good wife, Sir Henry's greasy tone quieted the others, renounce the old religion for marriage and favour. Who can offer more than the soul? Laudable, nodded the Marquis. These men were a dampy lot, Blackjack thought. He was glad to see the rooftops of Gravesend. Thank the gods, no more village swill. At last he could get drunk on something worth swallowing. His brother leaned over to him. I miss the velvet close-stools at the Arundel Inn. How I love to sit on them with my Mappa Mundi passing the time. Ah, so you wipe your ass with the world. By God, you left a brown stain on Scotland. William whooped. Good, my brother. Then when we return to London, we will to Cheapside and our rooms at the Arundel. Blackjack glowered. Marquis, William asked, do you think that I should be denied a comfortable shit because my brother peaked a lady? Sir, said the Marquis, taking his place beside Blackjack, this fellow wears a shroud. I'm not wearing a shroud. You curse me, Blackjack growled. I see it well. My lad, clear your shroud of mourning, the Marquis sympathized. I once lost a lady, a noble beauty of high rank, Sir Henry gushed. Oh, such a white neck, such honey breath and feather pillow breasts. I loved her more than the solitude of the stars. You misjudge me, sirs, Blackjack cut in. I lost only a fine place of lodging. Yet now we may go back and all is well, William said. Bite your tongue off, willful cur, yelled Blackjack. We will not return to the Arundel Inn. I do not wear a shroud, and I have not lost a love. These Queen's ladies we ride to escort. You will see me beat them off with a branch and take them to bed. There is not one Venus I have lost. Lady Elin Snakenborg will not cast an eye your way. She is to be my wife, was nobly spoken by the Marquis. Old man, Blackjack said. These ladies think I am the finest they have ever seen. God's blood, what are you about? William had lunged at him from his saddle. The Marquis is your better brother, William scowled. Vaunt nosewipe, said Blackjack. Settle yourself, William insisted. The Queen expects us to lead her ladies back to Whitehall, not to ravish them. Young men are not suited to this work Her Majesty bestows, Henry Lee lamented to the Marquis, spurring Spirito del Potente to jump up and kick out its back legs as an emphatic punctuation. Sir, my brother and I are honoured to be here, said William. Blackjack grimaced as Spirito del Potente's great dancing high step drew clapping and laughing from the amused townspeople of Gravesend. There, called out William, the Cornish chow, best Malmsey in Kent. Cobham House, where the ladies tarry, is a stone's throw from here. Let us ride on, the Marquis urged. I am parched, whined William. Pinchfist Cobham will not give us a draught. It is good, Malmsey, Marquis, said Sir Henry. Not as fine as my own, but it shall serve. I would stop. I too, Blackjack said, dismounting and turning over his horse to the groomsman. I am loath to pause, insisted the Marquis. Anticipation feeds desire, my lord. Dismount and join us, William said, and the landlord led the way into the tavern. With a show of bows and flourishes to the other patrons, William asked, Brother, shall we wager who shall bed the most? High spirits are fine, but my face brings their feet pitter-patter, Blackjack boasted. 
Yet vanity and dark nature drives them away, William insisted. Loggerhead, Blackjack swiped William. It keeps all even. Who wishes the same goddess day after day? My nature is lucky. Before boredom, it sends them to another bed. And as a gallant, I let them go. Trick yourself if you please, Blackjack. But men wish a love fit for poetry. See the Marquis. His devotion drives him to reanimate the wife he buried. He is moonstruck. Few love. One in fifty. Many marry. One in fifty men love? William asked. Not men. Women. I change the stakes. One in a hundred women. What wounds you have to salt, William declared. In youth we love easily, and in our doddery too. You make it too much task. I hoped for a bloody duel or two on the road. What a barren ride, Blackjack griped as he took a seat in the tavern. I too wish for that, William agreed. I have a new sword to baptise. Go to Scotland to spill your blood if you would, said the Marquis. Death loves valour. Sir, I know you not. What is more glorious than the battlefield? William asked. The kiss goodbye from your sweetheart is far more, Northampton answered. Blackjack felt smothered by this obsession with love. A man's heart is best served by the sword. Men's regnum bona possidet, Sir Henry Lee quoted. Seneca. Blackjack shuddered. He had had enough Latin jam down his throat to last a lifetime. Oh, God, for some action. Was his life to be nothing but dull plodding? Blackjack pushed back, noting the room, the tavern. Business was quick, the tables full, the guests drinking. Philomena's place was snugger, the beer more fragrant. It was superior to this. If he wanted to satisfy his need for comfort, he should return to the Arundel Inn. Turning to hail the barkeep, he noted a tall man as tall as the tower, passing coins to the innkeeper. Yet it could not be the tower, Blackjack reasoned. Why would the servant find his way here? My pardon, Blackjack said and rose from the table. He followed the man making for the stables. He thought to call out, but something kept his mouth closed. Walking into the stable, he confronted the figure. It was the tower, sword drawn and in a ready stance. My lad, what brings you to Gravesend? An errand for my mistress. Indeed. And I see white stockings and Magnus Nassus, but they are not bridled. You must need fresh horses for your charge. The tower made no answer, but countered as Blackjack tried to get a closer look at the hooded boy who sat astride the inn's horse. What is your name? The figure shied away. Who are you? Blackjack demanded. The person is not for your eyes, sir. The tower was resolute. Would you strike me, good lad, to protect this person? Sir, I know my duty. Blackjack studied the scene. Philomena's most trusted guard and the small hooded someone, sagging with exhaustion, the hair raised all over his body. It was no boy on the horse. Philomena, show yourself. It is not my mistress, sir, the tower insisted. But she bid me on this errand. The form was so meagre. Remorse filled Blackjack, his temper so wild, his judgment like an axe. Was that tiny thing, his Philomena, wasted away from love of him? He said, Philomena, we were once friends, my lady. Let me escort you where you must go. We must pass, sir. I would you step by, the tower insisted. Why will you not speak? Blackjack said again. It was unlike Philomena to hold her tongue. She feared her voice would quake. Or could it be that she had not the strength to fuel her voice? Or did she fear his condemnation of a face ravaged by this heart-sore illness? It was not for beauty alone that he loved her. That was but one piece of the mosaic. 
Philomena, I will take you to the physician. Something has affected you. You are weak. Come, dismount. We must pass, sir, repeated the tower. Blackjack drew his sword and struck at the tower. But his heart was not in a fight. He could not wound the servant who would lay his life down for Philomena. The tower, who was not lost in thought, countered with a clever defense. The servant had a strong arm, Blackjack had to admit. Halt! cried the rider, flinging up her arms. The hood slid from her face. Hell's fury, you! Constance Stoner, you! bellowed Blackjack. You what? You blood boil! Hold! cried the tower, sword aloft and dagger drawn. I bring you joyous news, Constance shouted. The tower leads me to exile. I will sail away forever. I will be gone forever. You flee, disguised. Who seeks you? Sir, I beg you, let us on our way. I swear I will cross the channel. My duty to the Queen's guard demands I do not credit your word. Blackjack was clear-eyed to Catholic slipperiness. This girl was not the sort who took voyages. She had another plot. No one feels your loyalty as I do, Constance said. I admire your vow to Her Majesty, but good sir, I shall away. So very far it might as well be to the very end of the earth. I shall never darken England again. You are deception itself. You led astray dear Philomena, weaving lies and wrongs. He felt a terrible twisting inside, facing this girl and saying Philomena's name. Perhaps he should just stab the stoner and get it over with. You wrong my friend. She has known nothing but a search for a trinket, a trinket to divert young ladies. He did not want to discuss his love with this Salome, and yet he did. Philomena sends you here. Only so I may depart. It is my own punishment. You have done something evil that you put this to yourself. But Philomena has done none of it. Let me pass, I beg you, sir. Let me sail away while I am resolved to it. For the first time, Blackjack saw how young this Constance Stoner was, her small hand covering her eyes like a child at her game, tucking a lock behind her ear, ready to proclaim to him to be reasonable. He saw she was a soldier too. Sir, she sobbed, I have wronged you, and more than that I have wronged my friend who loves you. But I crave your mercy. Blackjack wanted to drop his stance and ask her what Philomena had said about him. Did she love him still? Instead, he filled his role, taking an attack stand. You flee. I must drag you back, stand you before a judge, and let him determine your fate. The tower lifted his sword. Yet it was not the giant youth that stayed Blackjack's hand, nor this pathetic girl. It was Philomena. How could he haul this poignant Constance Stoner back to London to be hanged or imprisoned? Philomena would never forgive him, and by the laws of love she would be right not to. But they were not in love any longer. They were not friends. They did not speak. They were nothing. He straightened up and sheathed his weapon. Go your way. The tower retained his en garde stance, and the girl had a quizzical look, as if she had misunderstood. Fare you well, Mistress Stoner, or die on the way. Blackjack said, Pray God I never see you again. Oh, Blackjack, our hero. Letting Constance go like that. And really at her most vulnerable moment. And for Louvre. <laughs> Although he would never admit his weakness or that he still loves Philomena. No, of course he loves Philomena. 
And actually this road trip our manly courtiers are on in this section, it's based in fact. In April 1566, Queen Elizabeth was happy to get rid of Princess Cecilia because she was just too intense a partier. And owing everyone money for those parties, Cecilia wanted to get out of town. Yes, but there was still a protocol for these things, for a royal leaving town. And Elizabeth liked to do things the way they should be done. So she sent a delegation of some of her ladies-in-waiting to accompany the princess and her household to Dover, where they were bound to ship off to the continent and leave her alone. And Elin von Snakenborg was one of those to accompany Cecilia to Dover, but she didn't not return to Sweden with her princess. She just waved goodbye and said, later for you, Vasa. Yes, she was destined for big things at the court of Elizabeth, becoming one of Elizabeth's favorites. Oh no, here we go again with the favorite thing. Everybody, when you read about them historically, is somebody's favorite. And who knows if she had a favorite? We do not know. And her favorites probably changed all the time. Thinking about Elin's state of mind at this point, on this day when her princess sailed away, do you think she was pleased to stay in England? I do think so. I'm sure it was nerve-wracking to see all of her Swedish compatriots sail off at the White Cliffs. And she was so young. She was maybe 16. But England had a lot of opportunities for her. And it clearly she had already made a good impression. And I think she had to be a little adventurous to take the trip in the first place. No, I agree with you. It was just so different to say goodbye to people in the 16th century. And I'm thinking about Elin saying goodbye to people in Sweden and then having to say goodbye to people in England. It must have been so emotional to say goodbye and frightening because it was almost certain that you would never see that person again because travel was just too hard and distances were insurmountable really for most people. When she had said goodbye to people when she left Sweden, I don't know if she had considered that a final goodbye or she thought she would come back. But now whatever she had said to those people was the last thing. It did turn out to be very likely that she'll never return home again or ever see her family again. But even, even though that wasn't originally the plan, I wonder if her parents were like, what? You're well, never- there actually are some very interesting letters to her mother. Remember we found those letters to her mother and she's sort of like, mother dear, I'm not coming back. Oh, mother dear, I'm going to marry the Marquis of Northampton. You know, I think about the teenage Mary Queen of Scots setting off from the sophisticated court of France to be queen of this wild country, Scotland, she hadn't seen since she was an infant, or 15-year-old Catherine of Aragon setting off for Great England from her home in sunny Spain, where all her family was, her big family, you know, never to return. And she must have, in both those instances, those queens must have really had a sense that they weren't going to go back. And what about less illustrious people? Laborers who had to leave villages for opportunities in the city, and they couldn't afford to go back and visit the friends and families they had left behind. There was no WhatsApp. Or a web call or Zoom. You were separated from people in such an extreme way. Jessica and I, we live on opposite sides of the country. But we still manage to talk every other day or so. And sometimes for a very long time, because not everyone wants to have long conversations about Tudor history. (laughs) We have to call each other. (laughs) We have to call each other. Yeah, imagine if you sailed away from the one person who liked to talk about Tudor history with you and you could never talk to them. I guess you had to send really long letters. I don't know. I think about that sometimes. Like, do you think the permanence of separation affects 
affected people psychologically? I mean, do you think they were conditioned to be less attached to other people? I think of people as historically being more attached to their families, but I wonder if these sort of separations made people sort of psychologically less attached to their families. Maybe so, because some part of you probably understood that life expectancy was so much less, and it would have just been unbearable to have people leave. I mean, no one really leaves your life now. You could, even if you don't want to talk to them, you could see what social media they're on and just sort of check in. In a way, I think also that reverse is true because you look at Blackjack, he lets Constance go because he's very confident that once she leaves England, she will never manage to get back. She's going to be dead to him. He thinks he'll have Philomena all to himself. Constance will be out of the picture and that whole problem will just be solved. It will be over. Gone. It'll be over. Yeah. And whatever her feelings about what's over in her life and whether she'll ever see her Swedish compatriots again, Elin, as we know, historically headed back to London, now officially in the service of Queen Elizabeth. And at that point, she was all but formally betrothed to the Marquis of Northampton, which was a pretty incredible coup for her. And we know from historical documents that this party actually broke up their journey with a stop at the home of William Brooke, the 10th Baron Hobham. I don't know if it's just to be expected because the aristocracy was just so entwined with each other. But William Brooke was the brother of Elizabeth Brooke, who was the Marchioness of Northampton, who had been married to William Parr before she died and who everyone said Elin looked like. And often people would say that William Parr liked Elin because she looked like his wife that passed away, who he apparently was very in love with and who was also Elizabeth's favorite. <laughs> I know you can imagine that Elin would go into this house of William Brooke, the 10th Baron Cobham, brother of her new lover's dead wife, and probably be confronted with a portrait of the woman she was hoping to replace in the Marquis of Northampton's life. And unbelievably, again, here we go with people having the same name, another Elizabeth Brooke, not the dead wife of William Parr, but William Cobham's aunt was the wife of Thomas Wyatt and mother to Wyatt the Younger. The connections are just overwhelming. Yes, and Elizabeth Brooke and William Brooke's great-grandmother was a Boleyn on her mother's side. So actually all of these Brooks are related to Queen Elizabeth. And that great-grandmother was named Anne Boleyn. (laughs) (laughs) And that is not the Anne Boleyn, who was the second wife of Henry VIII, but just Anne Anne Boleyn. And that Anne Boleyn's father was named George Boleyn, not the George Boleyn who was executed in 1536, but a George Boleyn. I mean, it makes my head spin. It makes my head spin too. And it just shows you how careful you have to be doing historical research when you see a name, not to assume that what's said about that name is the person that you have in mind. You really have to connect dates in a very careful way. But anyway, I mean, the Brooks and the Boleyns, and in fact, the Wyatts, they were all really historically important families in Kent, which is in the southeast of England. It was, and you know, it still is a very important county because of the ports and its proximity to France. So readers of Tudor history might have come across a reference to the title Lord Warden of the Sinkports which was a very high and lucrative position and one that a lot of men fought over. And the five ports in Kent were Hastings, New Romney, Hythe, Dover, and Sandwich. 
And some holders of that title are familiar to our listeners, like Prince Henry Tudor was a holder of that title, Sir George Berlin, Vincecout Rochford, Henry Fitzroy, Duke of Richmond, Sir Thomas Seymour, and Sir William Brooke, 10th Baron Cobham. So other historical names include James the first favorite and possible lover, George Villers, who was the first Duke of Buckingham. And in the 18th and 19th century, Tory big shot William Pitt the Younger was the holder of the title. And in the 20th century, it was none other than Sir Winston Churchill himself. So it shows you how important and how high up Thomas Cobham was. We don't read about him a lot in history, but these people were very, very important. You can still visit Cobham Hall, where Elizabeth's ladies-in-waiting would have stayed on their way back to London in 1566. It's one of the largest and most important historical buildings in Kent. And the central part of the house was rebuilt in the 1600s. But there are still two Tudor wings, which were built during Elizabeth's reign. And now it's a very posh to say the pretty word or fancy to say the American word, boarding school for girls, and also functions at the occasional film set. Of course, but it's definitely worth a trip if you find yourself in Kent. And Kent is a historical wonderland. Anne Boleyn's childhood home of Peaver is there and another 30 castles, 30. Among them, Leeds Castle, which is supposedly the most beautiful castle in the world. So say the people who work at Leeds Castle, <laughs> there might be some dispute. What is exactly. the most beautiful castle in the world? I feel sure there are other castles. That make that claim. Yes. What about the Cinderella Castle in Germany, Ludwig's? Anyway, the name is very confusing because the castle is in the town of Leeds, Kent. But there is also a very large, famous city in Yorkshire, which is named... Leeds. Actually, when the castle reopened after the pandemic lockdown, they decided to formally change the name from Leeds Castle to Kent Castle because there had been so much confusion. We love this kind of stuff, but so we'll read you something from the website. Leeds Castle has been located in the village of Leeds near Maidstone in Kent for over 900 years. However, staff say they regularly encounter misunderstandings with people wishing to visit believing it to be some 240 miles away in Yorkshire. The decision to rebrand Leeds Castle to Kent Castle comes after a string of incidents from lost visitors phoning from Yorkshire for directions, wedding guests who have missed the big day by going to the wrong venue, and holidaymakers booking overnight accommodation in Leeds and discovering the next morning that a taxi to the castle would cost them over 500 pounds. A few years ago, one couple mistakenly traveled to Yorkshire for Leeds Castle's annual open air classical concert before realizing they had gone to the wrong Leeds and catching the first train to Kent, arriving just in time for the second half of the event. Oh my <laughs> gosh. Leeds Castle is now Kent Castle. After 900 years, they've Are decided. figuring it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they've, they've decided we should change the name. Enough is enough. Well, like, hop right on. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Imagine missing half a concert or, or traveling all the way to Yorkshire for a fairy tale wedding. And you're like, why am I on this empty moor? I thought there was a castle here. What happened? What happened? Where Blackjack and his fellows are right now is actually between London and Dover. And of course, now you can just zip down the A2 motorway and it's about 70 miles. But of course, that was a much bigger trip in, in 1566. 
And it's really no surprise that the original Dover Road was first paved by the Romans in about 40 CE. And it's never been out of use ever since. So again, you know, the Romans made a very good choice. They were like, that's a good place for a road. And they were right. Yeah. And also they set down those stones that made it easy, right? And the Dover Road is incredibly important. In the 19th century, historian Charles Harper wrote, of all the historic highways of England, the story of the old road to Dover is the most difficult to tell. No other road in Christendom has so long and continuous a history, nor one so crowded in every age with incident and associations. Well, if you're coming from 40 CE, you have a lot of time to cover. And in the Tudor period, people lucky enough to be able to afford horses could maybe make the trek in one day, but not without changing horses a few times along the way. Right, because a horse can gallop 25 to 30 miles an hour, but not one individual horse cannot keep up a gallop for 70 miles. And it's just, I think it would be almost inconceivable. And I think it would have been a very difficult road to really gallop on. Yeah, maybe with carts and merchants and everyone on the road and just how loose it must have been. Exactly. And some of the major towns along the Dover Road are Gravesend, Rochester, Dunkirk, and Canterbury. So inns like the Cornish Claw in Gravesend grew up as places for travelers to get fresh horses and possibly spend the night. And most of the people traveling the Dover Road would be on foot, which made them very vulnerable. The crime scene in Shakespeare's Henry V takes place along the Dover Road. Yes, in Gad's Hill, which is about 25 miles from the start of the road at London Bridge. And by the way, Gads Hill is also where Charles Dickens lived once he got rich and famous. Shakespeare has Prince Hal's sidekick, Ned Poins, plan a robbery along the route because it was known to be a road frequented by rich travelers. And Poins says, but my lads, my lads, tomorrow morning by four o'clock early at Gads Hills, there are pilgrims going to Canterbury with rich offerings and traders riding to London with fat purses. I have wizards for you all. You have horses for yourselves. Gad Hill lies tonight in Rochester. I have bespoke supper tomorrow night in East Cheap. You may do it as secure as sleep. If you will go, I will stuff your purses full of crowns. If you will not, tarry at home and be hanged. For staying home. <laughs> He's like... There's no reason not to rob these people. There's rich people going to London and there's pilgrims going to Canterbury. We will have our pickings. So let's go rob these people. Let's go rob these people. And that's also why pilgrims to Canterbury stuck together. That's why they all got together to do it because it was safer. There were two types of robbers on the English roads, footpads who robbed pedestrians and highwaymen who robbed people on horseback or in carriages. I know footpads sounds like slippers, but... To the Tudors, they were actually very dangerous. In the Tudor period, most of the robberies along the Dover Road were by footpads. Most people were on foot. So the pilgrims were on foot and the footpads were on foot. And, you know, they didn't really like carriages very much at that time. They were incredibly uncomfortable because of the unevenness of the roads and also because carriages, they weren't regularly made with springs. So it was a very painful and bumpy ride. I read that Elizabeth I rode in a carriage to open parliament in 1571. And she found the road so uncomfortable that she never rode in a carriage again. Probably true. And she liked to ride on horseback or to be carried on a litter, either by two men or for longer rides on a litter slung between horses. That was sort of the way she usually traveled. So carriages really came in in England in the 1660s during the restoration 
restoration of King Charles II. So it's really quite a while before the carriage thing catches on. Were the roads improved under Charles II? Is that why? Yes. And also the technology of the carriages with springs was better. So there were often multiple people traveling in one carriage, but that also made them prime targets for highwaymen. Stand and deliver. Your money or your life. (laughs) Blackjack is actually hoping for some action on this 20 mile ride return to London. He wants some feisty footpads to fend off. He wants to brandish his sword. And Constance and Charles still have a long way to get to Dover. Yeah, so they're also at risk of being robbed. And they're still about 50 miles to Dover from Gravesend. But we'll follow them en route in the next episode. So tune in next time for more Times Riddle and more Tudor-minded talk.